The last two weeks we've had readings from the last part of the Gospel of John and this one the same. This is Jesus in prayer just before his arrest, betrayal and arrest. And he says to God, I ask not only on behalf of these who are with me, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these that you have sent me, I made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which they have loved me may be in them and I in them. They're the last words of Jesus' prayer. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. So that they may be one just as we are one. John goes on and on about one, oneness, being one. What does he mean by it in this final prayer? What does it mean to be one? What does it mean that Jesus and God are one? What does it mean to be in God that Jesus says he is and that we also are? Because he was praying not just for the disciples but for anybody else who turns up afterwards, which is us. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Always makes me think of those Russian babushka dolls. You know the ones where you pull the top off and there's a little one inside, and then you pull another, there's another little one. It's sort of everything's inside everything else. Doesn't make it any easier to understand. I mean, we at one level we know that we're all one. It's now kind of passe to tell each other that we're all made of stardust, that we're all made of exactly the same elements of the universe that we that came into being at the moment of the Big Bang, that, that everything that exists, the things we're sitting on, the things we're wearing, the air we're breathing, the bodies that we have is all the same stuff. We, we need to know that and we need to understand it, but of course we never can. But it can just wash over us and it's really hard to know what this means. There's two things that I think are at least helping me to come to terms with this because like many of you, I've been listening to this stuff for years and it just washes over me some Sundays. Even when I'm preaching it, it just sounds like, oh, I've said all this before, you know. I, um, it, it doesn't sink in. One of the things we have to do to be full adults 
is to come to terms with our family of origin as best we can. And whether or not we lived with both of our parents all through growing up and it was a wonderful experience and then we left home and, and began to live our own adult lives separately or whether we didn't even know who our parents were or in any other combination in between. We've still got to come to terms with our experience of that family even if we don't know who they were. Am I like them? Well, of course you are in some ways. You look a bit like them. You act a bit like them. Some of that's good, some of that's bad. You have traits in you that are like them. And what does that mean for me? How will I live my life? And of course, as a teenager, you're trying to do this in great chunks. You're trying to make sense of your life separate from your parents. I have a friend at the moment whose son has been really interactive with her all of his life. Blah, 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 all the time. Which used to drive her crazy. Now, nothing. He's 15, I think, or 14, 15. How was school? Fine. What'd you do? Not much. You got any maths on it? Some. Monosyllabic. Now, I was probably, I couldn't, I, I can't imagine that I was like that as a teenage boy, but I probably was, I don't remember. Maybe teenage girls are a little bit different. I don't know. Maybe not all teenage boys. But this son is doing that. And one of the things, of course, he's trying to do is separate himself from his mum. Trying to figure himself out. We all know that. We've all done it. At least to some degree. And we did it really well and we did it really badly all at the same time. But we try to work out who we are. What does it mean that I am a part of this mob? Which are the things that are for which I can be proud? And which are the things for which I wish we didn't have in my experience. I have a friend who uh, every one of the women in her family has suffered from breast cancer. As far back as they as, as, uh, were able to test. And she assumes that she's got the same gene, which would be a pretty good assumption, wouldn't it? So she has to deal with something really physical and really basic. What is she going to do about the fact that she doesn't have breast cancer at this point, but the chances of her not having it seem fairly slim since everybody else in her family on, on the female side has had it. How is she going to deal with that? What does it mean to be a part of that mob for her in that context? I have another friend who um, found out that he was adopted while he was sitting by his mother's deathbed. He had no idea that he wasn't the physical son of that woman and she had decided for whatever reasons to not tell him but felt she needed to tell him in the few moments before she died. And then he spent a number of years trying to rethink what he thought he knew about his family and trying to imagine what it must have been like for his mother to have known that but not been able to tell him for whatever reason and what it would have been like for his birth mother who he did try to track down and was able to but she had died so never really made that connection um, what, what was that like for her too and how does he rethink himself as a part of that, that group being one with that family it's not it's not clear that that's easy But what it ought to do for us is create within us a little bit of humility. Because our mob, they've stuffed it up a fair bit. 
your parents didn't do a perfect job. Their parents didn't. Turns out, if you're a parent, you're not doing a perfect job either. And if you're not sure, just ask your kids. They'll tell you. So it ought to create in us a little bit of humility, a sense that then they weren't perfect and I'm not perfect. But we are somehow connected. That's a level of oneness that we ought to learn to be able to live with. It ought to be true within our organisation. Um, many of you will have seen the reports in the ABC about the um, problems within the Uniting Church, what are basically a, a, a real divide in our understanding of what the faith is about and how it should be experienced and taught. Many parts of the South Australian church, particularly and other parts of the church across the country, are dead against the idea that people who are of same gender should be allowed to marry within the Uniting Church. The Uniting Church as a whole has decided that that's acceptable and that ministers can choose whether or not they will marry somebody of same gender. But there's a group, a big group, of, and in South Australia it's about half the church, maybe more, are either uncomfortable with that or dead against it. And we're not doing a very good job at the moment of trying to figure out how we be together. How do we recognise we're one family and have a significant difference as to how we should do this? How gracious can we be towards each other? How can we work together? How can we try and understand another's position without necessarily buying into it? At the moment we're not doing a very good job and that's not because we're all stupid. It's because it's hard. There's another way of thinking about it too and I reckon something about this is what Jesus is on about in this last prayer. And it's the idea within indigenous cultures of having a story, having what we've called, and some indigenous people have now started to use this language, for better or for worse, a dreaming. The, the painting on the wall is um, Emily Kame Enware's famous painting of Big Yam Dreaming. The, the previous one, uh, the, the big multicolour one that was up there for a few minutes, is another of her major works, uh, uh, Creation Story 1. It's called Creation Story 1. Um, uh, this one's held by the National Gallery. The previous one's held by the National Gallery of Victoria. They're enormous paintings. And Big Yam Dreaming was part of Emily's, uh, Emily Onwario's uh, story that she was told to carry from a little girl. And my, and my understanding of this is really basic and it is nowhere near as nuanced as it should be. But as I understand it, in talking to indigenous people that I've worked with, when you're living within the culture as you should be, and lots of people have, have found themselves divorced from their culture, everyone is in part of a clan where they have to carry a specific story. And Emily's, uh, Emily Onwario's story was yam dreaming. And so it's the idea that you would know about where the yams are. It's a survival story. Without the yams, you can't live. Without water hole dreaming, you can't live. So nobody can carry all of this in their head. So different parts of the clan carry different parts of the story. And originally these were painted into the sand over and over again to, to remind those who, were, who needed to know it. And it wasn't never just one person. It's a whole group of people because life's precarious. And if the only person who knows where the yams are dies, no more yams. So it's worked as a group and the story is told over and over again. 
This painting she painted near the end of her life. She only became famous as a painter. And she's now, the, the for what it's worth, her paintings sell for more money than any other paintings in Australia. Many, many millions of dollars. These are almost now priceless, certainly since she died at the end of the 90s. And she painted this one um, as she did all her works by laying these enormous canvases out on the ground and sitting on them and painting them. And as she was doing it, she was telling the story of Yam Dreaming over and over again. And there's something about that, that the story that is essential for survival that I reckon Jesus is on about. Because he says earlier on in, in John's Gospel, he says the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. That's that sense of the handing on of the great tradition, the telling of the story over and over again so that we know who we are as a people. That's why we do this over and over again on a Sunday morning. We tell the same stories. We read the same Bible readings over and over again through, in our case, a cycle of three years as we remind ourselves of this extraordinary story that we are the people of God. We are actually claimed by God. We actually, in a sense, we're not only made by God, but Julian of Norwich, the uh, 14th century mystic uh, from the area of Norwich in, in England, said not only are we made by God, but we're made of God. It's a pretty extraordinary statement. And that was before she understood, as we now do, the interconnectedness of all things and the way things are made of the same stuff. We're not only made by God, we're made of God. We are godded, is another word she made up. We are godded within us all the time. It's an extraordinary thing. Now that is so unbelievable that I'm not going to be able to cope with it unless you keep reminding me of it. And you're going to get, get, lose your way unless I and, and each other, we remind ourselves of this extraordinary story. It's, in a sense, it's the painting of the big yam dreaming over and over again, the telling of the story of this extraordinary experience that we are so intimately connected with God. And Jesus, of course, uses the term over and over again in John's Gospel, more than in any other book in the Bible, the term father. This idea, for him, that was the term that he wanted to use to talk about the deep interconnectedness. So that's our job, is to remind ourselves of this extraordinary story. The deep oneness. And we've got to work it out like we do with our families. We've got to keep talking about it and figuring out where we fit into it at the moment. Because when you're 15, your relationship with your family is different than when you're 50. It's different than when you're 90 and you might be the only one left of your clan. But you've still got to reconfigure it, still work it out. We're still working it through. And we're telling ourselves the story over and over again, the big yam dreaming story for Emily Anwarie and for us, the story we need to tell in our culture, of our life, of the extraordinary idea that we are made by God and we're made of God.